Well, good morning. Appreciate you being here. My name is Mark, and I'm one of the pastors. And if you're visiting with us today, I'd love to get to know you just uh, a little better. And besides filling out one of those cards that's in front of you to um, let us know you just a little bit better, I'd love for you to come up and look me up after the service. It's kind of hard for me to find everybody, but uh, I'd love to meet you after the service. I'd also like you to meet uh, Jim and Kathy Radcliffe. If you two would come to the front, please. Jim and Kathy. Jim and Kathy are our missionaries in uh, Papua New Guinea, and um, this is their home church, and they uh, make their way back here as often as they uh, can. And uh, I've just asked Jim and Kathy if they bring greetings to their home church. It is a wonderful privilege to be here, and I wanted to thank the musicians for leading us in uh, the worship today. And the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness, is my testimony. I read this morning about being a witness, and that song says that nature is a manifold witness, but I want to be a witness for Jesus, and I thank you for in investing in my life as a child. Well, most of you weren't around, but <laughs> one of my Sunday school teachers just went to heaven two weeks ago, and I thanked the Lord for her. Some of you are still here, but you've been a witness in my life, and we thank the Lord. For his faithfulness, he is faithful for every step of the way, and I praise him. The Lord gave me a wonderful promise when I was a young man trying to decide what I would really believe, and it was from Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, for he has said, I will never, ever leave you nor forsake you. And we praise God for his faithfulness in the 31 years we've been there. I have met many missionaries and we have spoken in lots of churches, but I've never met a missionary who had a better supportive church than Xenia First Church of the Nazarene for their missionaries. We thank God for his faithfulness, for how trustworthy he's been. And we thank God for giving us this church who has prayed for us and sent supplies for the hospital, who have come numerous times to visit and to participate. And we just want to thank you and praise God. Okay, you I thought as long as we had Jim and Kathy up here, we would uh, take advantage of their vast parenting experience. They have uh, raised and I guess are still raising. I don't know if that job ever ends or not. Uh, six kids. And uh, I thought maybe as a little uh, introduction into our message today, I'd ask them just a little bit they've learned about parenting. And the first question I want to ask you is, in raising of those six kids, uh, what is some things that uh, you know you did right, but then is there something you wish you hadn't done or just done a little better? We um, don't want to create credit for anything because God has led us uh, and others have helped us, but we really tried to help the children know they could trust God with every part of their lives and the importance of His Word in their lives. The importance of having daily devotions themselves and then us having family devotions. The power of prayer, especially in troubled times or difficult times. And we thank God for how he has helped them to, in their own lives, begin to put him first and to trust him in their own callings. Uh, I personally wished I could undo some of the times where I, as a dad, overreacted very quickly to wrongdoing or bad attitudes and tried to use uh, 
my own power, uh, kind of like a surgeon does at work uh, over the children. But I praise God that he gave me a loving, listening wife who could counteract that uh, type of parenting with her own sweetness and prayers for the children. Um, I was showing my uh, mother and my brother and my nephew some pictures from Papua New Guinea, and I ended with a picture that I ended with last week of their six kids. And my brother just I said, wow, six kids. And he said, look how good they look. I didn't know if he expected them to look frail or what. I don't know. But I, <laughs> he goes, wow, man, six kids in Papua New Guinea. I guess there are some probably really good things about raising your kids in Papua New Guinea and maybe some things that weren't so good. Would you share that? Um, it's been wonderful to live in the community that we live in. The hospital is on a mission station, and now there probably are a 1,000 people with all the children right. on this mission station. It's a, a community of faith, and we hear our missionary family and our Papua New Guinean national family praying for that ministry to be anointed by the Holy Spirit. And uh, they, there are people that come to our hospital that say, we can feel the Spirit of God when we come onto the station. And that's because there are many prayer warriors, and they've spoken into the lives of our children, and we praise the Lord for that. The opportunity that our children have seen uh, in the hospital and to see their dad not know what to do, but turn to the Lord has been a very positive thing uh, when there's life and death situations. So um, it's been a, a wonderful community, and our kids have loved growing up there. I like the scripture Pastor Mark shared last week, Ephesians 3.20, how God is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or think. And our kids have seen that daily as God, mir God miraculously heals people and saves them and works miracles in our life and ministry. They've also had a chance to be a part of that ministry, and uh, that's been a privilege to have our children along with us uh, as missionaries. I think the difficult thing has been sometimes when they come back to the United States and try to fit in here and learn <laughs> to drive on these roads and learn the political systems here. So uh, we praise the Lord how he has helped them uh, in making those adjustments. Uh, the church board has, uh, in the past and once again, uh, wants to encourage Jim and Kathy and support them in their ministry. For them to come over here and, and participate in Priscilla's wedding is an expensive endeavor for them. And so we wanted to be able to help defray uh, some of that cost. So your church board has uh, de designated uh, another gift to uh, Jim and Kathy in support and encouragement uh, to them. Let's thank them for speaking to us this morning. I heard Jim speak several years ago. Uh, I, was, I was new on the district, so it could have been back in 04, 05, I don't remember. But uh, he was telling some of his missionary stories, and he was telling a story, and I don't remember anything about the story other than they needed some medicine for this patient. And he grabbed the medicine, he noticed that the medicine was expired, out of date. And he said, well, you know, the Lord can make out-of-date medicine work. And they uh, paused right there uh, and prayed and administered uh, that medication. For some reason, of all the things that 
that I've heard Jim say, and that has stuck with me, of the faith and the trust and the reliance and the dependence upon God in his practice, and I respect and I appreciate that uh, very much. The name of the series is Family Vacation, and two weeks ago, Pastor Nathan started, and he said, the destination is love. And um, what God wants out of us, uh, if you look at all the scriptures, is, is love. And it says it very plainly in many places. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 14, it says it pretty succinctly, the entire law. And for those of you that may be kind of new to the Bible, when the Bible refers to the law, it refers to all the Old Testament, thou shalts and thou shalt nots. That's referred to as the Old Testament law. It said all the law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. And uh, all those 600 and some odd laws in the Old Testament uh, the Apostle Paul said, can be boiled down to love. And all the thou shalt do this, don't do this, eat this, don't eat this, can all be boiled down to loving. And when Jesus was asked a question about the, what the number one priority is and what's the most important law and what's the big deal, he replied in Matthew chapter 22 this way. Uh, someone asked, teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, this is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets, Old Testament law and the prophets, hang on these two commandments. And I think all of us would, would understand if what does God require of us, and he requires love. But you know, love is a really weird word. It's just an odd word because I, I love my spouse, but I love Oreos too. And I use the same exact word to describe that. I love my kids, but I love Ohio State football. And I use the same exact word. And that, that word is acceptable. That's not a poor usage of that word. I love God, but I love my new cell phone too. We, it's a weird word because we use it so many ways. At least the Bible has three different words for love. It gets translated usually in three different ways. We have one word to describe everything from my feelings for my new car to my feelings for my mother, and that's really odd. And that makes the word almost meaningless because if it means a feeling I have for my mother and then a feeling I have for a new car, if it means feelings I have for my spouse and feelings I have for Oreo cookies, I mean, that's just weird. How in the world do you know what that word means? And we just have people all the time say, well, we just need to go love. We just need to love. We need to join hands and be the world and love the world and all that kind of stuff. I don't know what the word means. I truly don't know what the word means because I've had sometimes when I was acting what I thought it was in a real loving way toward that person, and, and that person didn't receive that as love at all. So what meant for love for me did not mean love for that person of, over there. And so we have to be able to go to the Bible for definition of, of love. And we can't go to the world because we'll get about a, a million different definitions of love. Back in, what was it, the early 70s, love meant never having to say you're sorry. And now that was about the weirdest thing I've ever heard in my life. But everybody just, their knees just went so we all <laughs> Love means never having to say you're sorry. Well, my, life dem my wife demands that I say sorry. <laughs> well. 
So we can't go to the culture. We can't go to us because we all have opinions on that. And the only authority we really have is Oprah. No, not Oprah. The Bible is the only authority that we have. Okay? And in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, it defines love for us. And I read this at every single wedding. I read it in every premarital counseling sessions I have with them. Love is patient and love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. Do you see these are relationship words? For me to express love, I, I have to be in somewhat of a relationship with other persons, not something I can kind of do by myself. Uh, me deserted on a desert island, I'm not sure how the word love would ever even enter my vocabulary unless it was just love for God, and that's relationship right there. Whenever love is defined in the Bible, it's, it's in terms of relationship. So, so love is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects relationships. It always trusts. It always hopes. And it always perseveres. I used to have a message about 20 years ago that I used to preach when I was planning a church in Georgia. And I travel all over Georgia to churches and raising money for my plant and, and spreading the word about that. And I preach a message that it's all about relationships. And I trace the Bible from the front to the back and explain it's all about relationships. Ours with God and ours with other people. That's all the Bible is about. The Bible is, is not about whether there's going to be a rapture or not. And the Bible is not about whether well, we're premillennial or amillennial. The Bible is not about whether you baptize with immersion or, or whether you sprinkle. The, uh, the Bible is not about all those things that sometimes give, gives us really bent out of shape many times. The Bible is simply about our relationship with God and our relation with other people. And it's about nothing else. Nothing else. And to make it about, if you want to make it a science book, you've made it about something that it's not. And you can try to make it a science book if you want to. It's about our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. You can make Genesis 1 and 2 be about dates and times and places, but Genesis 1 and 2 is about God has created. That's what it's about. It's not a biology. It's not teaching science there. It's about God. Our heavenly creator has done something. He is on the move, and he is created. Now, you can make up when and where that is and how long ago that was and all that kind of stuff, and you can make your charts, and you can show them on the back of the wall if you want to, but you're getting off on a rabbit trail. The Bible is about our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. Old Testament and New. Micah chapter 6 is one of the most precious passages to me in all of scripture and some of you may have never come across this passage and the prophet Micah says with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God what 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 shall I come before you with oh, what what will please you what can I bring you the prophet is is saying shall I come before you with burnt offerings a calves a year old will the Lord we please with thousands of rams and ten thousands rivers of olive oil Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, which was the custom in that day and time with other pagan religions? Shall I offer the firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly 
with your God. To act justly, that's a relationship word. How can I act in a just way by myself? It's got to be in relationship. I have to practice justice as it relates to someone else. I have to act in a just way to someone else or someone acts in a just way to me. How can I show mercy if it's just me? I have to show mercy to someone or someone shows mercy to me. And to walk humbly. And to walk humbly. It's a relationship word. And walk humbly before your God. So even in, even in the Old Testament, we see it's about, it's about loving God and loving other people. It's about loving God and, and loving your neighbor as yourself. It's all about relationships and how is it that we define love. If the destination of our family vacation is love, how is it we define love? Well, we define it with relationships. And that is something that's so easily forgotten. Because the culture pulls us. It's like a magnet and it pulls us. And especially our relationship with our kids. It pulls us to believe that love is about experiences. It pulls us to believe that love is, is about giving your kids all these experiences. And if you give them this experience, that may mean that you love them. And, and, and that's, I guess, well and good. And I could give an experience. I, I could send my kid off to study abroad, and I could do that. But I could do that without any love. I could certainly do that as, as an expression of my love. There's no question about that. But I don't have to have any love to do that. I don't have to have any love for my wife to be able to write a check and take her to Florida on vacation. That, that could be an expression of my love. There's no question. But there's, no one says that just because I give my kids and I give my family certain experiences that mean that I love them. There's a danger if we buy into the culture of raising kids that are experience-rich and relationship-poor. That are experience-rich and relationship-poor. And we run our kids around and moms are taxis and we go here and we go there and we go to this event and that event and that lesson and that game and that tournament and here and there and everywhere. And that in and of itself may not be wrong unless it's at the expense of our relationship with our children. And the way you judge these experiences is only through the lens of relationship. The way I judge an experience that I want to afford my child is only through the lens of how will that affect him relationally. For instance, the main, number one, top of the list, redeeming feature to athletics is not athletic achievement or is not an athletic skill. The number one redeeming feature to athletics is that you are part of a team. You are part of a team. That is at the top of the list of the reasons that athletics are good. That you are part of a team. And you have to rely on other people, and other people have to rely on you. And you have to count on other people doing their job, and other people have to count on you doing their job. And you have to realize that you're not in the spotlight all the time because they get to be in the spotlight all the time. And you have to sit on the bench sometimes when someone else gets to play sometimes. And that is relationship type of stuff. I hope your son 
gets a college, gets a scholarship to college. But if he does, he's one of the six out of 100 high school seniors that will. I hope your son, because of his great athletic achievement, or your daughter, because of her great athletic achievement, gets to make a living at athletics. But if it's true, he'll be one out of 10,000 high school seniors that, that make a living at their sport. Why do we think athletics are good? Because the experience is look through the lens of relationship. And the being on a team is a good thing. Now, if your child is not athletically prone, you still want them to be on a team, don't you? Because you want them to be in the band. Or you want them to be in course. Or you want them to be in Boy Scouts. Why do you want them to be in all those things? For the relational components and the relational lessons that are learned in all of that. Just like learned on a team. Be careful as you're trying to do right by your children that you don't make them experience rich and relationship poor because the success of your son, the success of your daughter, the success of your grandson, the success of your granddaughter is not going to be viewed through an experience. It's going to be viewed through the lens of how can they have and maintain healthy relationships in their life. That's how their success will be determined. And, and, and your, your son or your daughter may have great experiences in college and learn a great skill and go off to medical school and be a great surgeon, all of that, but their family is just falling apart and you wouldn't call them a success. Because success is not deemed on skill. It's deemed on how well we have can, and can keep and maintain relationships and they need to be able to learn that in the home. The destination is love and love is defined as relationships because it's all about relationships. Ours with God and ours with other people. And as you love your children it's those relationship things that they will remember. There are three very important relationships that your children need to have. and it's One with their parents and one with their friends and one with God. And I put them in that order. Because you know that statistics tells us and experience tells us that if a child does not have healthy, good relationship with a mom and dad that points them toward Christ and has friends who are supportive of that, they may not walk with Jesus. The vast majority of all of you who came to Christ came so because you were raised in a Christian home. Not every one of you. Not every one of you. But the number one way that people come into the Christian life is not at an altar of prayer, at a church. It's not at a Billy Graham crusade. It's not at a youth group. It's because mom and dad pointed the way. And a good, healthy relationship with mom and dad and good, healthy relationships with friends that are supportive of what goes on in the home may point that child toward Jesus Christ, may influence that child toward Jesus Christ because influence is really what you're after, is it not? Influence with your child is really what you want to have influence with your child. And, and, and the amount of influence that you have is a direct correlation to how healthy your relationship is with your child. 
The amount of influence that you have is an absolute direct correlation to the amount of influence you have with your child. I got a phone call Friday night from somebody on the district that wanted me, by district I mean our district of Nazarene churches, that wanted me to make a phone call to another person on the district. And I said, man, why don't you just call him? He goes, no, Mark. He said, it'll mean more from you. He said, you're friends with him. I don't really have a relationship with him. What was he saying? Mark, you have influence with him because you know him and you're in a relationship with him. I don't have influence. I don't know him. I know who he is. Hey, you. Hey, how you doing? But with relationship, with relationship comes influence. And what you want is influence with your children. I'm trying to tell you this morning that what Nathan told you two weeks ago, that the destination is love. But love is a weird word. It's, it's, so, it's so generic, it doesn't really mean anything. And the biblical understanding of love is all in terms of relationship. It's not giving your kids experience, and there's nothing wrong with giving your kids experience. But it's always spoken of in the terms of relationship. And when you have relationship with your child, you have influence with your child. And influence is what some of you now desperately wish you had. Desperately wish you had. When you're young, influence comes by size and position, right? I don't want to get in a car seat. You don't get in a car seat right there. I mean, it's not a big deal, is it? It comes by size and position. Okay? Is there a single one of us dads and their kid wouldn't do something? You just picked him up, put him over your shoulder, and you took him to where you wanted him to go. You have size and you have position. Okay, but that goes after a while. <laughs> And you no longer have size, and you no longer have position. Or there gets to be a time where you still might have size and position. I still have size and position over that little runt there, right there. Okay, I can still put him down if I need to. But if that's the way I discipline with him, I may have won the battle, but I lost the war. Because when our kids get older, we still try to use size and position, right? Well, if you want the car this weekend, that's size and position. That's size and position. And you may win the battle, but you'll lose the war in the long run. And there's, there's got to be some time in your, in your parental career, I guess, that you transfer from size and position. I remember one time Christopher, he was, he was probably two, and we were cutting his hair, and he just melted down. Just, just melted down. You know, Dad was cutting it, so Dad probably got it, uh, hair in his eyes or something. And then, he, then he started crying, and then all the tears melted on, matted to his face and something. But we were halfway done with the haircut. What are you going to do? And by golly, we just held him down for all he was worth and just put it to him, man. (laughs) Size and position.
But there must be a time that we transition from that. And it, it, it better be before the middle school years. Even for my boys, 7th grade and 6th grade, because I said so, it probably still works, but it's wearing pretty thin. And they may be obedient to because I said so, just to eliminate the consequences. But it's wearing thin relationally. Destination is love. No, no one doubts that. But love is a, it's just, it's just a generic word. What in the world does it mean? It could mean one thing to one person, another thing to another person. Bible speaks to love always in relationship terms. And the great thing you get about relationship is you get what you really want and need is you get influence. Uh, several years ago, I traveled and did corporate seminars on all different type of topics. And for some unearthly reason, people paid me to come talk to them. I have no idea why that was. And and I would go do in-services for teachers. And I would do two different in-services uh, dealing with a disruptive student and how to motivate the unmotivated learner. And those were two different seminars, but both, basically the content was a, a, basically the same. And I used the principle that I'm teaching right now. I used that principle, and I didn't tell everybody it was a biblical principle, but I used it in these seminars. And I, now... What I show you up here is in the context of students, but you put it in the context of your children. What we have up here, uh, Amanda, uh, controlling our students. I was talking to teachers now, okay? Controlling our students means the teacher does not does something that helps the student to do something she may not want to do. Controlling is kind of size and position. The teacher has some control because she can send them to the principal's office. She can send them to in-school suspension. She can send an email home. So there is some size and position that a teacher has, okay? And that's controlling the students. And I was trying to tell the teachers, what you don't want to do is control the students because that is, that is trying to motivate through size and position, and that wears really thin, so controlling the students means you get the student to do something the, teacher, the, the student may not want to do. But when you can influence a student, that means the teacher does something that helps the student to want to do something. Now, wow, now you're teaching. And that's what the best teachers do. And it's certainly not easy. But when you have such relationship with your, t with your students that they want to do something for you, Nah, you got a good classroom. And I'd have some teachers look at me all cockeyed on this because the, the thing we learned when we went to teacher school is you don't smile before Christmas. I mean, literally. That's what, you, that's what they taught you. Don't smile before Christmas because the kids will take advantage of you. And here I come in teaching something completely different. This is how you, this is how you get students to behave. And this is how you get students to grow up. If you're always controlling your students' size and position, you're leaving your students in an immature position, and you're motivating them from an immature uh, place. The same thing would go with parents. And, and, I, and I, would, I would also say, the next slide up here, Amanda, says that teachers can't control their students. You have control over no one on the face of this earth but you. Zero. 
you have control over no one on the face of this earth. You really don't. And the sooner you admit that, the happier you'll be. Okay? As soon as you admit you don't have control over your husband or your wife, the happier you'll be. You've got control over one person, and that's yourself. And we can possibly, as teachers or parents, act and react in such a way that will influence students' behavior, influence your children's behavior, that you're in such relationship with them, they love you, they don't want to disappoint you, and they want to do what you say because you're in relationship with them. A whole lot easier preached than done. But it's the prescription. It's the prescription for love. It's the prescription for kids that come back home once they're 30 and 40 and 50 years old. It's the prescription for kids who ask you your opinion of this person they want to marry because you have influence with them. Destination is love. Love is defined by relationship all the way through the Bible. Byproduct of relationship is influence. This is what you really want with your kids. So how do you get relationship? Well, I think we could talk a lot, but let me boil it down to two words. One is acceptance. I could spend five minutes listing all the scriptures that tells how God has accepted us. And his desire is for us, for us to know that we are accepted in the beloved. Now, if the Holy Father wants us to know that we're accepted and us to be secure in that acceptance and rest in that ex his acceptance of us and rest in his love, don't you think he'd want the same for earthly fathers and earthly children? I don't know how this works with, with natural-born children because Sue and I have never had any. We've adopted both of our boys. But, you know, we were taught in, in adopting classes that we need to constantly talk to our uh, adopted sons or daughters as, and tell them, you are our forever child. Now, I can understand in the foster arena where some kids have bounced around from home to home to home how that's really, really important. Both of our kids did not have to bounce around from home to home to home. It's easier for them to understand that. Christopher came to our house at four days, of, four days old, and, Chris, and Levi came at seven months. But you are our forever child, and there's nothing, there's nothing you can do to make me not your dad. There's nothing you can do to make me not love you. I can be awfully irritated at what you do. But that has nothing to do with my love and my acceptance of you. You may do something and I may ground you for the next seven years. You're mine. And you'll always be mine. And this will always be 
your home. Although I hope you leave one day. <laughs> Acceptance has to do with how safe the child feels, how secure. One thing I tell my boys, I say, I will always be married to your mother. And I know that half of your kids are divorced. Your friends are divorced. I will always be married to your mother. Because they need to feel accepted and safe. Accepted and, 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 and time. You know, the old phrase is, well, I don't get to spend much time, but what I do spend is quality time. Not sure how much that works. Because what I think is quality time may not be quality time for the youngster, and what the youngster thinks is the important thing. I think it's quality time that we went to a Reds game, and the youngster could be absolutely bored at the Reds game, and he wants to go home and play Legos. Time. There was a time a few years ago that that Levi was just kind of really um, had a bad week, and we were getting emails from parents, and he was being mouthy at home and at school, evidently. And he was just, he was just going nuts. I don't know what it was. It had to be something that Sue did or something. I don't have any clue. <laughs> but but on Friday of that week, my response: to, I had to fight the natural. The natural was to put it in his room and tell him that he's not going to see daylight for quite some time. That was what I wanted to do in the natural. But I tried to practice what I preach. And Friday, I drove him, just me and him, we went to Columbus and spent the weekend in Columbus. And we did Levi things because there was something wrong with the relationship. And I needed to get closer. I needed to get closer. And I see little glimmers of that paying off. As a school teacher, I, I would have a kid that was getting on my very last nerve and driving me nuts in class. And what I would try to do is I would try to give that kid some extra attention. If that kid was an athlete, I'd go to his football or baseball practice and just kind of lean against the fence and just kind of watch him for about 15 minutes and the next day when he came to class I'd have something to say about practice and tried to increase the relationship it was a female I'd go to her volleyball practice and sit on the bleachers and watch her practice volleyball kids notice that they don't miss ever miss that when their teachers do stuff like that try to increase the relationship Mike Malvin was probably the, the, the most challenging child I ever had. And, and he was a junior in high school and, and just really challenging. Spoiled rich kid. And, and um, I found out that he bust tables at the, at the Hilton. And I lived in Virginia Beach at the time. And he bust tables at the Hilton down on the beach. And so I made it a point to every now and then go to the restaurant at the Hilton and eat. 
and uh, hey, Mike, how you doing, man? And then kids see outside of school, they think teachers are, they think teachers only teach. They just in their classroom all the time. They don't think you have a life outside of. And so, I, you know, and if I had somebody with me, I introduced him. I say, hey, so and so, this is this is Mike. He's in my. And I didn't act like you didn't let this person know or Mike know that we just I about wrote him up and sent him the principal's office. Hey, this is Mike. He's in my third hour health class. Da 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 da. It. It helped. It didn't totally correct it because he was a piece of work. <laughs> what I'm trying to tell you is that um, relationship is acceptance in time. It's a lot of different things, but I don't have time to go into all of them. Destination is love. What in the world does love mean? I only know what the Bible says. I really It's relational. It's just relational words. Getting close. It's getting close. Byproduct of that is you have influence, which is what you want, parents. And the way you have relationship is acceptance and time, at least those two ways, many others. Jesus came and died on the cross, and Jesus died on the cross um, not so we can just go to heaven. It's so, the Bible says, so we can be adopted children of God. So that we can enter into the family. The Bible says Jesus is our elder brother, and God is our father. All family language all relationship language you don't see too much in the New Testament you don't see too much language of God's kingship like you do in the Old Testament God's that God is the judge like you do in the Old Testament he is a king he is a judge but it's the New Testament that boils down the fact that he's Abba Father Abba Father and Jesus came to die not so will we would just be um, righteous, made righteous by the blood of Jesus, which we are, but so that we could be children. The Bible says we're heirs of God and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. <laughs> Maxie Dunham, my seminary president at Asbury, says you've got to believe what the Bible says about you, no matter how good it is. Shortly before Jesus died, he gathered his disciples together and he says to them, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. And how many of us see ourselves as servants, which is not totally wrong or bad, but don't see ourselves in that close, intimate, personal relationship that even Jesus would call us his friend. If that's a relationship Jesus wants with us, don't you think that's how love should be defined in a parent? child 
family relationship. As you come to the table this morning, he died to be in relationship with you. He died for you to walk with him. He wants to be your friend. That close. That personal. Father, I'm not sure I said anything brand new to these folks today, but maybe some needed reminder for me and needed reminder for these people as well. I pray that you would take these words that I've spoken this morning. I claim your promise that they will not come back void, but accomplish the purpose that you've had for them. Help us during this time of communion, which is a relationship word in and of itself. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, the name of our elder brother, the name of our friend, Jesus. Amen.